So go ahead and flip to Romans 4 if you have a Bible. And we're going to look at Romans 4, 1 through 25. And we're calling this message Abraham's Family. And uh, we're working through Romans um, and, and, and Paul's, one of the greatest letters ever written, heavily theological, heavy in terms of meat and uh, kind of going into the weeds sometimes it seems like. Uh, but it's a, a very important book and foundational book as we explore what it means to be unashamed of the gospel. So um, Romans chapter 1, let's just read 1 through 25, and you can follow along or listen as I go. These are the words of God. What then shall we say that Abraham our father, according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. Now to him who works, wages are not given as a gift, but as a debt or a payment. But to him who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Even David describes the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness without works. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. That's Psalm 32, 1-2. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? We are saying that faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith that he had while being uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all those who believe though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while being still being uncircumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his descendants received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law become heirs, faith would be made void and the promise nullified, because the law produces wrath. For where there is no law, there is no sin. Therefore the promise comes through faith, so that it might be by grace that the promise would be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Before God whom he believed and who raises the dead, and calls those things that do not exist as though they did. Verse 18, Against all hope, he believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body to be dead when he was about a hundred years old, nor yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able to perform. Therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. Now the words, it was credited to him, were not written for his sake only, but also for us to whom it shall be credited if we believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our transgressions and was raised for our justification. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we are thankful that we have been included in the covenant by faith in your Son, who was the faithful one. We have gathered today to worship you, to fellowship with one another, and to be spurred on towards the work of your kingdom in the world. 
Help us to do that, we pray. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. That's quite a lot of, a lot of reading. Well, here we are. We have uh, quite a bit to cover today, so I really just want to jump straight into the passage with um, only minimal prefacing. If you flip back in your Bible real quick to chapter 3 and just look at verses 21 and 22 real quick, um, I'm going to read that and I, and I want to kind of anchor our time in that. Paul writes, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. This righteousness of God comes through, and as I argued, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all and upon all who believe, for there is no distinction. So I'm going to summarize this dense portion of Scripture at the end of chapter 3 into chapter 4. Here's, here's the bird's eye view, if, if you can. God's covenant faithfulness and justice has been manifested apart from the Torah, though the prophets and the Torah themselves give witness to it. God's covenant faithfulness, the, the faithfulness to the promises that he made all the way back to Abraham and through Abraham to the rest of the world was now enacted and put into operation through the faithful death of Jesus the Messiah, who, who and not just for him, also for us, for those who exercise and share in Abraham's faith. That's what he's saying. So all that stuff way back when in Genesis 15, you have to deal with that. You have to deal with God gave a covenant to Abraham. And now that Jesus is here, what does that actually mean? That's Romans chapter 4. Now, one might be curious as to why Abraham is brought up here. Uh, why didn't he talk about Moses? Why didn't he go you know, talk about these other people? Well, there's a, there's a theological reason. Is Paul just giving us a quick biblical proof text? Uh, sort of a, a side comment and otherwise long theological oratory? Or is something else going on? The, the reason the Apostle Paul brings up Abraham is because he has to bring up Abraham. He has to. The, the entire focus of the passage is about forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ. And that's because something else is going on, namely God's covenant purpose in forgiving sins and putting the world right back together, that's, he's doing that for Abraham's newfound family. So something else is going on. God's covenant purpose in forgiving sins and putting the world back together through Abraham's family. He has to talk about Abraham. The entire foundation of justification by faith goes long before Paul, people argue today, is it Jesus, his version of justification by faith, or is it Paul's version well, actually, both versions are Abraham's versions. So he's going a long way back into Israelite history to deal with something that happened. So we cannot and must not forget or ignore that Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 happened when it happened and where it happened. And the wonderful verse is, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. That is not a small verse. That is a massive, massive verse. Abraham, or Abram at the time, believed the Lord. He believed Yahweh. And he, God, credited it to Abram as righteousness. Believed what? What was the promise God made? And why does it matter now? That's Romans 4. So let's just kind of summarize that and walk through it. And you can follow along as we go. 
So in verse one, you have a very clunky Greek construction and all of the translations vary, all right? And I actually um, will side with uh, Richard Hayes uh, in his understanding. What Paul asks here at the very beginning is what he seeks to explain through the rest of the passage. Abraham is the father of the covenant people of God, but he's not the father uh, in terms of according to the flesh. He is the father of all, Gentiles and Jews. He's the father of all who believe in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. So when Paul ends chapter 3, he, remember he removes all boasts. Where is the boast? Where is your boast? He's removing all boasts. And the reason is because Abraham himself is included in this not boasting thing. He had no boast either. So why would any Jew in the first century have a reason to boast in the flesh when their father Abraham had no reason to boast? If you recall in the, in the Gospel of John, there's this really awkward moment when there's arguing over who, who's um, the children of Abraham. And Jesus says, well, Abraham's not your father. The devil is your father. Sting, burn, um, savage Jesus, laying it out. And, and Paul's explaining why that's the case here. So the better translation, by the way, of verse 1 is this. What shall we say? Have we found Abraham to be our forefather on the basis of human descent or genealogy? Is Abraham your father merely because you have somehow descended from him? Your great, 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 great grandfather knew his great, great, great father who was, you know, um, connected to Abraham somehow. Is that the reason? That, so is it, is it true that Abraham is our father simply because we have circumcision and therefore the law takes primacy over everything? The question sets the tone. Well, what's the answer? Well, Paul says, no, that's not the case at all. He's not your father, just like what Jesus was saying to the actual Jews at the time. No, he's not your father according to the flesh. There's something else going on. If Abraham's covenant membership was defined in terms of him doing works of the, law, of the law, the Torah, then Abraham and his descendants would have something to boast about. That's verse 2. If it's true that being Abraham's, uh, uh, being Abraham's fatherhood, his being fa a father, was based on works of the law, that is specifically circumcision, because that's the boast, right? That's the boast. Then being a Gentile in the family of God would mean becoming Jewish. And we know that that boast doesn't work. And Paul is extremely adamant about this idea in Galatians, because if you recall at the end of the book, he says, boy, all these circumcision obsessed people, I hope the knife slips. That's essentially what he's arguing. You, you want to go there? Fine, go ahead and mutilate the flesh. <laughs> if that's where you're at, that's, that's where that end game goes. That's not at all what Jesus taught, and that's not what Paul's teaching. Paul, in verse 3, knows that his greatest appeal is Scripture. Abraham believed God, and based on this faith, and not works of the Torah, what did God do? God reckoned or credited to Abraham this idea of righteousness because he believed in the promises of God. What was the promises of God that he gave to Abraham? Well, you got to go back three chapters, Genesis 12. I will make you, your descendants as numerous as the stars. I will make, I will bless the nations 
through you. What did Abraham do? He believed it. So in that exercise of faith, what did God do? He credited his account, this kind of a credit debit thing here for the accountants in the room. Uh, there's this credit column and what's in there is Jesus's righteousness and that's it. No other boast. So Paul, he situates the works, wages, faith, gift paradigm within the context of the covenant. In verse four, he says, when you work, what do you do? You earn a wage. The Gentile who doesn't work, that is, keeps Torah and has the badge of circumcision uh, like the Jew, but instead he believes the way Abraham believed, that being that God justifies the ungodly, then guess what? Verse 5 says, his faith is credited in the same way that Abraham's was. So workers, workers are not paid by, by grace, but by debt. Debt being something that's owed, right? You, you get a paycheck. That's something that's owed to you. But believers, what he's saying is believers get paid by grace. It's not a wage. You can't give God anything anyway. Our righteousness, according to Isaiah, is fil filthy rags. So you can't give up anything anyhow. So you, how could you possibly earn anything? You can't. So um, no one puts God in debt. <laughs> Think of it this way. How in the world can the God who owns everything be put into debt anyway? He can't. Because Genesis 15 happens, that's belief in what happened in Genesis 12, all of that comes before Genesis 22, which is the sign of circumcision. Because of that, we can say that Abraham is more like a believing Gentile than believing Jews. <laughs> how is that for a, a plot twist? Why? Because what happened to Abram? He was an uncircumcised pagan, and God showed grace to him. So Paul appeals to another scripture there in verses 6 through 8. He cites King David in Psalm 32. The old, his point is the Old Testament paradigm has always been justification by faith alone, crediting righteousness apart from works of the law, and not imputing sin against someone are the same thing. It's the same thing. So then if faith is the way to go, what does it mean for the circumcised and the uncircumcised? Well, he says in verse 9, faith is what was credited to Abraham as righteousness. This is the paradigmatic point of the whole thing. Faith gets you righteousness by grace, not as something you earn. Now the question might be asked, why or how? How in the world does God credit this to him? Does he credit it in terms of circumcision or uncircumcision? And the answer is very clear. I love Paul's theological exegesis here. All he says is, hey, remember Genesis? Genesis 12, God calls Abram. Genesis 15, Abram believes in the promise that Genesis 12 gave. What, did, what happened in Genesis 15? Michael read it. The covenant was cut. What was the sign of the covenant? You have to go seven chapters later to Genesis 22 to see the covenant symbol of circumcision being administered. Paul says that's just basic chronology. That's Israelite history right there. So it came in verse 10 when Abraham was Abram and Abram was an uncircumcised Gentile pagan. So the sign, and, and don't miss this, the sign of circumcision was a seal of the righteousness given to him when Abraham had exercised faith. 
And the reason is stated here in verse 11 is so that he might be the father of all who believe. The circumcised Jew and the uncircumcised Gentile. And that way, righteousness could be credited to those who believed like he believed. Those who have the faith of Abraham have the faithfulness of Christ. That's the idea in verse 12. So, so two things. One, does the family of faith have to regard Abraham as their physical father? No. I'm pretty sure none of you in this room are physical descendants of Abraham. Pretty confident. So that's gone. How is God going to bless the nations if he only wants there to be physical descendants of one person? Two, Abraham was uncircumcised so that the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, could come into the covenant. So here's, here's what you should be thinking. Okay, so faith, not works of the Torah, the promises of God over the law of God. The law came later. The promises of God, they don't contradict the law of God, but they take primacy. That's Paul's argument. So the promise came before the law of Moses and the law of circumcision, and the promise was that many descendants would populate and inherit the earth, the world. And this, he says in verse 13, would come about through the righteousness of faith. So the law produces wrath because what does the law do to those who break the law? It condemns them. If righteousness, that is, remember, covenant membership in Abraham's family, if righteousness were to come through the law, which can only bring wrath to the lawgiver, then what does Paul say here? Well, then God's promises are nullified and void. It's almost like God tripped himself up. Oops, <laughs> I gave this promise in Genesis 12, and you probably thought, Abraham, that I was just going to fulfill it, whether or not you were faithful to it or not. And by the way, I credited you because you did believe <laughs> But I'm going to have to change that a little bit because now I need you to insist on the law of circumcision as being the most important thing. I, forget what the covenant means. Just be all about the externals. As if God would ever make such a mistake. See, the Torah came after the promise. And if the law negates the promise, then we have an eager, even bigger problem on our hands because now God is internally inconsistent. And now we should all just become functional nihilists. Let's stop what we're doing right now and just go eat our Mexican food. That's what we're having today, right? Yeah. <laughs> so now we have a bigger problem. So the point is, one, law reveals sin in Israel. Two, sin invokes the wrath of God. Three, if, if inheriting the world was for only the ethnic descendants of Abraham, then four, Nobody gets the inheritances at all. If the inheritance is only for those who keep the law, what happens when everyone breaks the law? There's no inheritance. So God won't fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now we can toss Habakkuk 2 out the door. So there's, there's an issue here, and he says, and that's verses 14 and 15. Paul's point is this. History is to be sanctified, not condemned. History is to be sanctified, not condemned. The world is to be conquered, not squandered. So the promise came through faith, and grace abounds all the more because grace comes to those under the Torah and those outside of the Torah. That's verse 16. 
So the next few verses then contrast Abraham with those, by the way, in chapter 1 who rejected God. If you remember Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, Paul just unloads on the pagan worldview. And he's going to contrast Abraham with those of, of Romans chapter 1, and I'll just give you a sampling of it. To start, in verse 17, we know that Abraham believed God. He believed God. And what did he believe about God? That God was the life giver and the creator. Not only can he give life when someone is dead, he can create life out of nothing. Well, what about those in, in Romans 1? What did they think? Well, rebellious men suppress the truth and they ignore the creator. That's Romans 1, 20 and verse 25. Okay, well, what about Abraham? Abraham against all hope in verse 18 he believed in hope that the promise of him being the father of many nations would actually come true he believed that well what about romans 1 well rebellious men have no hope but they have debased minds and frustration okay well what about abraham in verse 19 abraham's body was as good as dead he was nearly a hundred years old how in the world could he have a child and yet he believed in the promises of new life. Well, what about rebellious men, sinful men and women? Well, they dishonor their bodies because of idolatry, this disintegration into the void. That's Romans 1.24. And also true in your Bible there, Romans 4.19, is the fact that Abraham and Sarah were given the power to conceive a child. Miraculous. They're both old. She's barren, has never had a child in her life. What does God say? Not only, well, you're going to have a child. God says, actually, you're going to have a child, and that child is going to go forth into the world, and we're going to bless the nations. Worldwide impact. Talk about incredulity. Well, how could you possibly believe that? Well, Abraham did believe it. But what about rebellious men and women in, in Romans 1? Guess what? The unfruitfulness of homosexuality marks sinful humans. It's an unfruitful worldview. It ends in death. And yet here we have God the life giver bringing life out of death. In verse 20, Abraham's faith was unwavering and strong, giving glory to God. And in chapter 1, verse 21, humans did not glorify God as God. You see the contrast? Abraham... In chapter 4, versus the unregenerate pagan worldview in chapter 1. So, uh, Abraham also recognized God's power to create new life in verse 21. Back in chapter 1, verse 20, humans knew about God's power, but they didn't worship him. So, Abraham is the man of faith par excellence. He is the classic case, the man of faith. And because of it, the Bible says it was credited to him as righteousness, as covenant faithfulness, based on God's grace alone. That's verse 22. So the, the remarkable thing here about Paul's theology is that Abraham's faith serves as the foundation for the entire covenant building, which is now being fashioned in Christ. And it was not only for Abraham's sake, verse 23, it was for the sake of his kids and his grandkids who would mimic and model this faith. It's as if Abraham got with Isaac and they sat around the fire. We'll call it, maybe they were near the Christmas tree. I don't know. And he, and he said, guess what, son? We're going to impact the entire world. 
and it's a big place, but God has promised it. Isn't that exciting? Isn't it exciting that God promised that he would change the entire world? And we have to ask the question, is God going to change his mind? And Paul says, no way. He has to bring up Abraham because that's the whole point of what Jesus had done. He was the faithful one. He is the new Abraham. He is the one that exercised perfect, flawless obedience, a faithfulness unto death, which is what Paul brings up next. Abraham, in verse 24, believed in the power of God to create ex nihilo, out of nothing. Likewise, we believe the same thing. Why? Central to our faith. God raised Jesus from the dead. The life-giving God in whom Abraham believed and was subsequently justified and vindicated is the same God, Paul argues, that raised Jesus from the dead. In him we are now justified. In him we are now vindicated. That's the logic. Why bring up Abraham? Why wouldn't you bring up Abraham? Jesus did the same thing. So Christ was delivered over to the cross for our sins, there in verse 25, and he was raised so that we could be put to right in the sight of the good and just God. I think it was last Easter I preached from this text. So if you ever want to go back and and kind of a different explanation, you can go go there. So what do we do with this passage? The whole section of the first four chapters, I just want to give you a bird's eye view. It can be summarized like this. The events concerning Jesus the Messiah and the gospel announcement that is his death, resurrection, and his now status as Lord and King of the entire world, that reveals to the world the covenant faithfulness and saving justice of the triune God. The promises made to Abraham have, in other words, now come home to roost. So the promises made to Abraham and enacted and and fulfilled in Christ are intended to redeem the world. Don't miss this. Christ intends to redeem the world. And the way this happens, interestingly enough, is by the formation and election of a worldwide family whose sins are forgiven and now put to death, and they now live unto righteousness and justice in the world. That's Romans 4, Romans 1 through 4. Here's the gospel, the King Jesus gospel. It's the same gospel that was all the way back from the very beginning. God promised Abraham, Jesus came, same promise, same fulfillment. Christ wants to save the world. So so the death and resurrection, that's the foundation for us. That's what secured our forgiveness. So we know sin was the problem and forgiveness is the only solution. Blessed are those to whom the Lord does not count their sin. That's Psalm 32. We need that. And Jesus gives it to us. So through the faithfulness of Christ, God has brought forth and he has cashed in on his purpose for Israel, namely to be marked out for the redemption of the world. So the Torah can't mark anyone out because the Torah condemns those who are under the Torah. You can say, oh, I've kept the law. You haven't actually perfectly. It's like glass. You break it, you're gone. That's James. what James tells us. So um, that's like police policing themselves. <laughs> oh, don't worry. We've investigated and found no wrongdoing. Of course you did. 
it doesn't work. Something else has to take place. A creation of the non-ethnic covenant family has to come about, and that can only happen through the grace and mercy of God modeled in Abraham, brought to fruition in Christ. This is why it drives me crazy when you have kinists who will argue the separation of the races. Well, well, you know, Abraham was separated and we have all the other nations that were separated and, and God set up the boundaries of the world. Nonsense. Jesus tore down the dividing wall. God intends to make one family out of every single ethnic group in the world. You can't hold to kinism. So the whole point of the passage is that Abraham's family is not composed of a single ethnic entity or nation, but is instead a composition of many nations. So the, the entire world is supposed to be engulfed by the family of God. Which, as a side note, it's interesting that Peter quotes from the Old Testament, specifically Exodus, and he says that the church is a nation. The church is now a nation. The people of God is, is a nation that goes into all the nations to nationize them in the family of God. That's the point. So the, the answer to Adam's sin and the subsequent rebellion of the world has always been a family. It's always been a family. That was always God, God's answer. You, you know, you read Genesis and Adam and Eve sin and then the flood happens and then the Tower of Babel happens and then you turn the page to Genesis 12 verse 1 and suddenly it's like the shift. What would God do? Why didn't he just send Christ way back then? Well, no, God chose to send Abram into the world. God chose a family. Didn't that seem ridiculous? <laughs> Abraham had the faith to believe in the power of God to create a new people with new statuses inside a new covenant in a new age who serve a new creation order. And now we get to do the same with Christ at the helm. Christ, our captain, Hebrews says. Christ died and was raised, and now we, exercising Abrahamic faith, the only type of faith that declares a man to be just, must believe, we must believe in the power of God to create a new people with new statuses inside of a new covenant and a new age for the purposes of a new creation order which is intended to serve Christ the King. And it is interesting that there's this emphasis in the text on creation ex nihilo. God spoke and something came into existence out of nothing. And there's an emphasis on God being the sole source of life. Listen, justice and life cannot be sought apart from the God of life and the God of justice. Can't do it. This is, I think, a failure of modernism and postmodernism. Um, being declared just and in the right with God happens uh, like the creation of the world, out of nothing. Think of Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones, right? None of you came to Christ because you were just so stinking smart. And God had to choose you. Why wouldn't he be a fool? Look, hey everyone, come look at how good I look, to quote a movie. So this is, that's arrogance, right? We were dead. We needed a, when, when um, by the way, when David says in Psalm 52, to create in me a clean heart, create, the word is the same we get in Genesis 1, bara, out of nothing. Created me something new. It's got to be something new. So, what boast did Abram have? He worshipped idols. What boast do we have? We worshipped idols. 
What do we bring to the, to the table of grace? What do we bring to the table of grace? Well, only our sins, only our lusts, only our gossip, only our ingratitude, only our fickleness, only our tawdry attempts at righteousness. That's all we bring. And there is a deep and mysterious connection between God being the creator out of nothing and our being established in him in the same way. So justification, remember, justification is being set right by God in the covenant. Justification happens ex nihilo, out of nothing, which is absolutely just like the promise from which it came. And if you think about it, that's how salvation always is. And, And the point Paul makes over and over again, almost ad nauseum, is the fact that man can only ever be made right by a fiat declaration from God. That's it. Modern men try to make themselves right through various means. Some of it's fascism, that's some of it's socialism, all of it's humanism. People want to be made right in their own fiat declaration, which is why, by the way, the pride movement, for example, will never be called the humble movement. You don't get to live in rebellion pontificating in God's world, breathing God's oxygen by being humble. No, you do things your way, right? You, you do things, you do you, that whole mindset, through this high-handed, fist-shaking tyranny and oppression. Might makes right is the slogan du jour. But for the people of God, we know this will not do. The only way to be made right in the world is through the audacity of humility. The only way to be right, to be made right, is through the audacity of humility. If only we could have some presidential candidates to demonstrate such things. Here's the thing. The entire purpose of justification by faith alone is to liberate men and women and children from sin and death in order to serve the covenant Lord. So God doesn't forgive you by judicial declaration simply to turn you loose and so you can just go and do your own thing. No, you are set free. You are declared in the right so that you would serve the covenant Lord with all other free men and women. That's the point. And the law of God only, is only a death sentence to those who are slaves of sin. The law of God is only a death sentence to those who are slaves of sin. It can only become a way of life after the chains have been broken and the judge has set you free. And it's interesting to to note, go back to chapter 3, verse 31, that Paul has already said in verse 31, we establish the law. Far too many modern Christians are functional antinomians. They think God sets them free so that they can finally do their own version of self-fulfillment. And what's worse is that they think the civil magistrate can do whatever it wants because they're not bound by any law. They, you know, I'm free so I can do my own thing they say, which is nonsense. See, for Paul, the promise of God's plan to redeem the world through Abraham's family is a covenantal blessing which cannot be divorced from faithfulness to God's law. God's law is man's tool of dominion. We say it over and over and over again. Abraham's faith, and subsequently your faith, 
sets you right with God in order to serve God. To have one's sins forgiven is to have one's life redirected, rechanneled into further obedience for the future. I love what Rushton said. I'm just going to quote him here. He says, Where men do not live by faith, they devour the future with a present-centered religion and with politics and economics, which concern themselves with exploiting the present at the expense of the future. Mic drop. Is that not what we have today? Who here is ready to sound the alarm of the national debt? Who's here to sound the alarm that we'll just keep printing money, debase the currency, and steal more money from people? Who's here to sound the alarm that we are living for the present instead of living for the future, which is what Abraham had to do, because that's faith. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to wrap this thing up, brings you into Abraham's worldwide family, which is an all-encompassing, all-immersing experience that requires absolute, unconditional surrender to the Lord of glory. So friends, in Christ you have been set free. As the hymn says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. So why have you been justified, church? So, you can, so your life can be marked by this ever-increasing pursuit of justice in your life, in your family, in the church, in the life of your neighbors. Why have you been saved and procured by Christ? Not so you can live unto yourself, but so you can live unto Christ. Faithful men, women, and children are those whose sins have been forgiven, whose present pursuits are informed by the law word of God, and whose future is marked out by the covenant blessings of God. The family of God is this worldwide adoption agency. We want more and more people set right with God, brought into the family table where we can sit down, feast, and dine all on the Lord's dime because he is good. Let's pray. Father, indeed, you are good, and, and we do acknowledge uh, your goodness and your righteousness and your perfection, and we acknowledge that we not we are not always on the same page as you in that regard. Sometimes we are ungrateful. Uh, other times we are forgetful. But what we know today is that we need Christ's faithfulness. We are thankful for our father Abraham, who was brought out of paganism, believed your promises, and was credited as righteousness. And we... We celebrate that in Christ we have that same thing. So, Father, we give this time to you as we partake of communion and this agape fest, this meal, this feast unto you. Uh, we raise our glass to the King. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>